Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. I'm super excited to share this next episode with you. We discussed neuroscience, positive psychology, stress management. A lot of it was really about practical tools, things that really, really are simple and can just help you make those small changes. And a lot of it was based in neuroscience. I found it really interesting because my girlfriend is in that area and I've learned a lot through her and being able to have a practical application that's bedded in science, I think is a really important thing, especially in this modern world where we're just flooded with information. It's really hard to find what is good, what's actually going to work. So I think this will be really beneficial to you if you're looking for those simple techniques. Sue Langley is a global leader in positive psychology, neuroscience, and emotional intelligence. As CEO of Langley Group, she spent many years studying the human brain and has an incredible ability to translate the science into practical ways to enhance your life and the lives of those around you. Sue, so nice to meet you, and thank you so much for making the time to have this conversation. I'm excited to be here. We've had a little bit of a conversation already, and I'm excited to see where we take it. Exactly. I mean, that's what always happens. You sort of start chatting and getting to know each other before you record, and that naturally leads into, you know, super interesting topics that come up. So um, I'll have to remember what we were covering and try and, you know, weave that into um, today's conversation. Uh, But yeah, I think so many interesting things I want to ask you about. But before we dive into all of that, um, if you can just give a bit of a background so our listeners can get to know you. So sort of... um, a bit of your backstory and how you've come to be doing what you're now doing. Mm. So I I spent uh, a year traveling around the world. I ended up in the travel industry. I'd been a lorry driver in Europe. So my first career, if you like, was literally a truck driver in Europe. Um, And um, I knew I wanted to start my own business uh, after being sort of thrust into a leadership role, which many people are at quite a young age, I was really good at what I did. So they made me a leader and I had no idea what I was doing, um, which is often the case. Um, and so I started to really explore the science, I suppose, well, the science of personal development. So at the time, personal development sometimes isn't based on science. There's a lot that isn't. Um, so I started looking at the science of emotions. Um, I started exploring neuroscience. Uh, I did a psychology A-level when I was in the UK. Um, I didn't go to university or anything like that. I dropped out. I was, you know, not academic at the time. Um, and I, then when I came to Australia, I started my own business and I really wanted to create a business that was the intersection of the science of emotions, positive psychology and neuroscience, really to help people be the best they can be. And what I seem to have a knack for is taking the science and synthesizing it down into real life practical tools that people can use. Um, and since then, I've been lucky enough to build a, a global business. Uh, we consult with uh, pretty much huge companies around the world down to individuals. 
we launched the first Diploma of Positive Psychology and Wellbeing to help people really bring the science of positive psychology into their world, whether they're in HR or consulting or a psychologist or actors or yoga teachers or anybody, basically, um, to really help people be the best we can they can be. And I love it. I work all around the world. I work in my stretchy pants in my pajamas at half past three in the morning. Um, and I love seeing the change people make. Wow. Well, yeah, that, I mean, and I think such an amazing story. And for anyone listening, I think, you know, and a lot of people, a lot of our <clears throat> our listeners are, you know, very entrepreneurial and, you know, wanting to do their own thing or transitioning out of a current career into a new one. And I think that's such a great message where you um you know you it's never too late to sort of start and there's always you know a pathway that we can take because i think a lot of people feel like if they're already on a certain path that means you can't go in a different direction but i mean you've completely gone and just followed you know all of these different things you wanted to do and combined them and created this you know incredible thing that you're doing now and i think it's just it's inspiring well, I think to your point, Nick, yeah, often we think we have to know everything before we do it. Um, I was a truck driver, literally a truck driver, when I started doing my A-level in psychology through distance education. Um, I did my degree in psychology when I was in my 30s. Um, when I started my business, I had no qualifications, so literally nothing. Um, and people would sometimes ask me, um, you know, do you have a psychology degree? Are you a psychologist? I'm like, no, no, no. And maybe it did hold me back, but at the same time, um, I had a belief if I can just get on stage and say some stuff that people are interested in and they think I've done a good job, they'll give me more work. And and I think that's what happens is if you're good at what you do, you get the work from it. Um, and the biggest hurdle that we have to get over is ourselves of I don't know enough. Um, and even for me, when I started in business from a consulting perspective, every other consultant that I met had been in a consulting firm and then left to start up their own consultancy. And usually their first client was consulting back to the firm they'd just left. Um, yep. And I had none of that. I'd come to Australia. I had no contacts, no nothing. I'd never been a consultant before. And I remember lamenting to somebody once of, I just don't know how it's done. I've never done this. And they just went, maybe that's a good thing. And yeah. it was. I did it my way as opposed to somebody else's way. Absolutely. And I think that is such a great message. And I am a huge believer in that and just learning by doing. And of course, it's great to, you know, have that information and education, but it can, it can hold us back. And often if we know too much, we might be overwhelmed and, and realize how difficult it's going to be or overthink it and not actually <laughs> yes. take the action. Like if, if I thought back to all of the things I was going to have to go through in my career, there's no way I would have done it, but I'm so glad that it happened yeah. that way. And um, exact, like so similar to what you're saying, I um, was just getting up and, you know, doing these um, initial talks when I had no experience in it. And I was clumsy at the beginning, but I learned and it built from there. And I think if I yeah. tried to formally go through a process, I would have never done it. Yeah. Sometimes being oblivious is useful. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Uh, so, <laughs> So you're talking um, about a lot of, I guess, practical application from what you're saying and distilling, which I think is such an important thing, distilling um, a lot of scientific information to things that are palatable. Uh, do you do you think there is a bit of an issue, I guess, with people being able to 
um, you know, find the right information and be able to find information that they can, in a practical sense, actually use to improve, you know, their well-being and all of these areas, because that's something that I've definitely seen to be um, a big issue myself. Yeah, look, I think there is in the fact that sometimes um, there are many people out there doing great stuff, but sometimes the science gets distilled down so much that it becomes meaningless. Um, And what I mean by that is um, people have their own favorite things. So um, favorite tools that they use for well-being. And then it's like they set up their business with just those one or two things and beat people over the head with it. But actually, we know from science that um, the things that support your well-being may be different to mine. Um, I'm not a big mindfulness fan, and yet so many people set up whole businesses on mindfulness, and they love it, and which is great. I teach mindfulness to a degree because I know it's one tool on the toolkit. But for me personally, I, I have a belief of treat yourself as a scientific experiment. So what I do is I take the science, I practice it on myself for eight weeks, and I go, does it work? And sometimes it does. Like journaling, I absolutely do that um, most days, even if it's two lines or if it's a whole ream of stuff. Um, I practice gratitude regularly. I practice savoring regularly. I practice curiosity regularly. Lots of things that I do regularly. Um, Mindfulness after eight weeks, I went, that was nice, but didn't really feel much any different. So I don't do it, tend to do it. I do it when something big happens, like... um, you know, somebody close to me uh, a few years ago passed away and I did as part of my practice of, of dealing with grief, I um, listened to a honouring grief mindfulness for 15 minutes and that was one of the tools that I used. But I think sometimes the science gets distilled down so much that I get asked it all the time, what are your top three tips for well-being? And I'm like, I refuse to answer yeah. that because it's different for me as it is for you. The only thing that I think gets underestimated is the systemic aspect. And this is underestimated in the science because scientists often pull things apart rather than putting things together, which is one of the reasons why um, I did my master's in neuroscience of leadership because I wanted to study the brain. I've been to Venice and studied at the Neuroscience School for Advanced Studies of the link between the brain and the microbiome. I've studied translational genomics to understand the human genome and how that uh, connects Because unless you can put us all together as a whole and think about how the activities, the intentional activities we do every day interact with our genetics, our microbial genetics, our environment, et cetera, you're probably missing the big picture. Um, Mm. So I think access to good stuff, access to stuff is easy now. Access to good stuff, quality stuff is less, less easy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and I guess people get overwhelmed because there's so much access, but it's where do I begin? And I think that's a great, you know, point what you're saying there that, you know, trial and error, if we find the these different tools, we're not going to really know what will work for us. Um, and the same with, with me. I've tried so many different things. And I in, in the past when I was struggling and still now I, you know, do therapy, but I saw so many therapists. But the thing that really actually helped me was, just through my own personal trial and error of exercise, meditation, um, you know, having supportive people around me, being open and vulnerable and all these different things. And you find things like you're saying that work and don't work and refine your own, you know, daily sort of habits. And that's been the thing that's made the biggest difference. But I think a lot of people are um, don't, you know, get to that point because they're so overwhelmed by I need to do all of these different things every day that they don't really stick to any of them so they don't get to see what 
may actually help them. And I think to your point, Nick, one thing that I think is often lacking is the science behind it. So I know for myself, um, sometimes even with our diploma, um, we had a lady recently, she posted a little video, uh, which was very sweet of her saying she'd been studying uh, well-being for four years. She'd been teaching it in schools. Um, and then she came on our diploma and she was blown away by how little she knew because she knew the things, but she didn't understand the science behind it. And to your point, when you understand the science of emotions, because there's a whole science behind the physiology of emotions, the triggers of emotions, the progression of emotions. And when you understand the science behind it, it makes sense because you can you can experience the emotion, and I always call it data. You experience the data. You notice what's happening in your body. You then go, ah, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so it's that emotion, and that's what's triggering it. Ah, oh, so that's what I have to deal with. But we don't even teach that. I mean, we barely teach it in kindergarten, you know, with the smiley face, the angry face, the sad face, let alone into adulthood. And I get thousands of people, whether it's CEOs, leaders, um, teachers, psychologists, I get people come through our programs and they're like, wow, why does nobody teach us this? And I'm like, well, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what you're, you're on a mission to do, which we need more people like you out there doing that. But I mean, it, it, it is a crazy thing that this is probably the most important thing, you know, we can use in our lives and <laughs> and we're not taught it, you know, and our parents haven't been taught it. So we don't get taught from them. It's not taught properly in school and it's trial and error. Um, it, it doesn't really make sense. And we need, you know, as much education as possible because we do. So, yeah, yeah. like you're saying, it's, um, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, how many people do you think are living their lives where they're sort of, you know, driven by their emotion and negative emotion and, you know, being reactive without probably even realizing it and having that inform a lot of their behaviors and decisions and, mm. you know, that sort of thing? It's a really good question, Nick, and I'm going to go back to the science because there's a beautiful model that I was teaching at 4am this morning <laughs> um, uh, from Corey Keyes that looked at um, the distinction between uh, mental health and mental illness and well-being as sort of two different dimensions. And um, roughly 19% of the population uh, are living with a diagnosed mental illness. Some will be flourishing and some will be languishing with that mental illness. Um, and that means 81% of the population are have no mental illness. But what's interesting is some are flourishing and some are languishing. And I often think of the languishing side as to your point is when I don't have as many tools in my toolkit as what life is throwing at me. Now, that could be to your point because I've never learned them. Um, it's I don't look after my eat, sleep and exercise. I don't know how to leverage my positive emotions. I isolate myself from people or I wait for somebody to fix it for me and I don't have the tools. If you can put tools in people's toolkit, then flourishing does not mean that life is all beautiful and perfect. Um, I can guarantee every one of your listeners, including you and I, we have all been through adversity, every single one of us. I can guess probably at least 50% of people are going through adversity now. The difference between flourishing and languishing is do I have the tools in my toolkit to deal with it? And that's yeah. what I think is the difference is if I don't have the tools to handle the emotion, we're all going to experience grief. We're all going to experience anxiety, anger, frustration. They are normal emotions. And if we have the tools to deal with them, that's okay. We can sit with the discomfort of those emotions. We can start to put the tools in our toolkit and we can handle them. It's when we don't have those tools 
Um, and to your point, we're not, you know, many people don't get taught those tools. It can be hard. So we do find ourselves, to your point, overwhelmed by our emotions. We, we feel anxious all the time. We feel sad all the time. And that's when potentially we can end up with mental illness um, or mental health challenges as well. Yeah. So you're, it's really talking about resilience there, a big part of that, I guess. And um, would, oh, sorry. Yeah, you go. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends and follow me on Instagram at Nick Brax. I really appreciate your ongoing support. Yeah, well, it's interesting the word resilience because I often think of um, resilience as, to your point, emotional management strategies. Resilience is can I get myself back up? Can I can I um, deal with the downs and can I leverage the highs? Because from positive psychology, we also know that it's really important what you do when you're having an up, not just how do you fix your downs. Mm. And the only reason I hesitate sometimes a word around the word resilience is many organisations now are, again, using it as a bit of a big stick, as in, you should be more resilient, Nick. And, um, and it's like, well, do I really want to put you under as much adversity as possible just so you can learn to be resilient? Um, so it's not always yeah. that we have to wait for life to throw us things to be resilient. We can start doing the tools and strategies even when we're having the good times as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think it can probably go both ways. Like, would you say now, because there's so much awareness and so many people are acknowledging these things that, you know, sometimes it can go too far the other way as well, where we're starting to be aware of these different emotions, but we're buying into every emotion and thinking, oh, I'm feeling this anxiety. That means I must. Whereas a lot of it is, is it's okay, let's feel it, let's acknowledge it, but let's also not let that drive you know, because if you buy into it, it will probably compound and get worse. So, oh, look, absolutely. Yeah. And this is why I always use the term emotions are data, they're information, they're trying to tell you something. If you are anxious, it's yeah. data, it's information, it's trying to tell you something. Your job is to feel it, figure out what it's trying to tell you, and deal with it. Um, unfortunately, to your point, what happens is people go, Oh, I'm feeling anxious, I shouldn't be feeling anxious, I must have an anxiety disorder. Well, that's not overly helpful because anxiety, it's just data, it's information, it's trying to tell us something. Um, and if we can use that data to help us rather than shy away from it or rather than pretend it's not happening, which, of course, then it's going to happen even more, we're better off. And, and again, it's a saying I have all the time is get comfortable with the uncomfortable emotions. Grief will happen. Anxiety will happen. Anger will happen. To actually be able to sit with it and go, oh, that's interesting. I'm having some data. And then what do I choose to do with it can be much more powerful than hoping it goes away, doing nothing, or potentially immediately thinking there's something wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess trying to, you know, block those emotions as well. Is that another big one? Because, I mean, I'm just talking about, I guess, observing my own, you know, behavior and testing things on myself. And, you know, recently I've made a really big push to, get off social media as much as I can and I would usually you know I was in a really bad habit of every time I felt a negative emotion or I had a block a, a break or had free time I'd just look at it and use that to block it so I found it felt really uncomfortable but it's actually a, then allows you to feel the emotions properly mm. look absolutely and it's interesting you say that Nick because when we talk about emotional management strategies some of the strategies people use that are very effective, as in they work in the moment, are not good for your well-being. So I'll give you the two most popular, probably three most popular emotional management strategies. One is alcohol. Alcohol is a very popular yep. emotional management strategy. 
because basically it um, numbs how you feel um, and you can pretend that you're not feeling it and it's all good. Uh, if you think about television, the same thing. If I binge watch Netflix for the next six hours, I can block out my life. I can block out how I'm feeling. I can take on board passively what's going on on the screen. Social media is another one where I get absorbed in another world. Unfortunately, then often leads to some more, more challenging emotions. But unfortunately, some of our easiest or most effective in the moment strategies are not good for our well-being because we're not, to your point, actually yeah. sitting with the emotion and going, oh, that's interesting, what's going on for me, etc." and dealing with the emotion. I think emotions are wonderful. And I remember the, the time when um, uh, somebody close to me passed away, as I say, a few years ago. I was in Melbourne. I was about to do a keynote the next morning um, at a big conference. And um, it was the memorial of the person that passed away back in the UK, and I wasn't able to get back to the to the memorial. And so one of my team who lived in Melbourne sent me a message and said, do you want to come around for dinner tonight? I know it's the memorial tonight, you know, just to, um, you know, sort of cheer you up, take your mind off it. And I replied saying, thank you so much, but no, I'm going to wallow in my grief tonight. And I deliberately sat there yeah. in my very beige hotel room and um, got my little takeaway. And I thought about the person. I thought about how much I missed them, how much I loved them, how much I cared about them and how grateful I was to them for everything they'd taught me. And I sat with my grief. By the next morning, I'm like, yeah, okay, I feel, I feel good. Whereas to your point, if I'd have suppressed it and I'd have gone out and go, no, 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 it's all good. The next morning on stage, that probably would have been in my head about the person and I'd have been distracted and I'd been experiencing the grief then. So I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To, to mm. your point, sometimes it's just really important to go, oh, I'm having some data and enjoy it, even if it is challenging. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Thank you for sharing that, that story because I think that's such a great example and it's such a it's a difficult thing to do because <clears throat> we live in a world now where it's we've just got distraction in front of us twenty four seven. So, I mean, unless you do have that discipline or awareness and discipline to make that effort, then it's going to be so difficult. So, I guess it really does mm -hmm. take just trying to yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting you say about social media um, because I think um, there was some wonderful research during COVID that came out. Unfortunately, a lot of the things that came out in the in the media around COVID was very negative, but there was some brilliant research going on in positive psychology. And one of the key themes they were looking at is what bolsters, buffers, and boosts, if you like, uh, well-being during COVID. Um, one of the key themes was the less time spent seeking information on social media, the more people's well-being was buffered. Um, oh, wow. The more time you spend on social media, the lower the well-being. And it kind of makes sense to me is, I mean, I don't think social media is bad. I think social media can be great. And there's lots of research that tells us where it can be great. Um, mm. So it's really about using it to your advantage. Um, and to your point, one of the things that I often think is, 
Um, if you're trying to reduce social media, set yourself a timer, uh, take it off your phone, only look at it at certain times, you know, give yourself some of those things. But the other thing from a neuroscience perspective, and I know we touched on this before, is turn your screen to black and white because brains right. don't get as stimulated by black and white. So if you're scrolling through social media with a black and white screen, your brain will soon get bored where the color, it pops up and you're constantly stimulated. So I did that years ago. Um, and when I was thinking, yeah, I need to stop looking this quite so much. So I just had my screen on black and white for a while. Um, and now it's 15 minutes in the morning. That's my check of social media, reply to everything that's there. And then I'm done. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And how, how much of our, you know, brain power and bandwidth is that taking up if you know if you were spending say two three four hours like a lot of people are you know scrolling through social media looking at screens watching shows doing all of these different things is that taking up a lot of your available you know mental bandwidth for that yeah. you know for, that you would That's want to put into other things question brilliant question and um so i love the whole neuroscience piece i always put the neuroscience behind it and there's a few things we need to know about the brain so if you think about your limbic system which is your emotional center your automatic your memories your habits all of your automatic processes and then we think of our prefrontal cortex which is our um strategic thinking our decision making our paying attention our self-regulation etc um, the prefrontal cortex needs a lot of fuel to run. And by fuel, we often talk about dopamine and various other neurotransmitters. And when your prefrontal cortex is low on fuel, you tend to resort to your habits. So if you've got a habit of scrolling through social media and you've got no fuel in your prefrontal cortex to self-regulate, you're going to find yourself 45 minutes later, still scrolling, still scrolling, still scrolling. So you need your prefrontal mm. cortex to go, no, stop, I'm done. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. The prefrontal cortex is required for decision-making. <clears throat> it's required for self-regulation. Now, if we think about that, that takes a lot of fuel. Every time you make a decision, you're using fuel, just like a car. So you might have the best Ferrari in the world, as in your prefrontal cortex, but if the Ferrari is low on fuel, it's stalled on the side of the road. Mm. Now, here's an interesting one, and this is from neuroscience research using Facebook a few years ago. Um, uh, they literally studied how many decisions you make in five minutes of looking at Facebook. And it was 150 decisions. Oh 150 God. decisions in five minutes. Because the decisions are, do you scroll, do you not? Do you look, do you not? Do you comment, do you not? Do you read the comments or not? Do you like, do you not? Do you use a sad face, do you not? That was 150 wow. decisions in five minutes. Think about how much brain oh. fuel you are wasting in five minutes. That's huge. That's unbelievable. It, it's scary. <laughs> that, that, that really scares me because <clears throat> I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, being addicted to scrolling and it's just like, wow, that's, mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to play this to my, yeah, oh, sorry. I was just going to say my girlfriend will love hearing all of your neuroscience talks. She'll, I'm going to play the, the recording to her afterwards. <laughs> well, the trouble is what happens is once it becomes habitual, it sort of drops into the limbic system, if you like. That's the way I think about it. So it becomes habitual, and then you almost can't stop scrolling. And I have to admit, I giggle sometimes with my other half because he he looks at a lot more social media than me. And um, and sometimes when he's holding his phone, his thumb is moving, even if it's not 
changing anything. It's like he's got this twitch now that's become this habitual thing. And I don't think he even knows it's doing it. Um, yeah. So to your point, once it becomes habitual, it's really hard then to get out of it, which is why we need strategies like get your phone off your desk, don't sleep with it next to your bed, turn it to black and white, all those little things. So we're not wasting that brain fuel, but then also we're not turning it into a habit that's then tough to break. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, it's, it's really fascinating. And I guess to what we were talking about before, if with all of this, you know, giving ourselves the space to feel these emotions, uh, is it possible that we can actually feel emotion if we're doing all of these things nonstop? I guess you're blocking yourself from having that ability. So unless we give ourselves space and time, does it, we're not really going to be able to process different emotions that yeah, need to come through well us. Sometimes what happens when we get engrossed in something, the emotions happen afterwards. So if you mm. think about um, flow theory, flow theory, um, if you are genuinely in flow, you are not happy necessarily while you're in it. So flow, off people often understand, is when time disappears. It's, it's way more than that. Um, but one of the things is time can sort of uh, morph. But what happens is if you are truly in flow, you do not experience the happiness while you're in flow. You experience it afterwards. And that's a bit like that with social media or TV. We experience the emotions that are being thrown out of at us, like a, a TV show or a movie. This lovely going to a movie. You absorb all the emotions. You cry in the movie and you laugh in the movie because you're taken on a journey. But none of them are yours. Mm. So it's only then at the end that how does it impact you? Does it impact you because you walk away with a sense of holding those emotions? Or does it remind you that you're back in your own life and now you have to deal with your own emotions? So yeah. what we need to understand is that sometimes social media can almost put our own stuff on hold while we're scrolling and we can have a laugh and we can um, be sad and whatever you with what we're seeing. But afterwards, life is going to hit us again, as in we're back in our own life. And if we don't deal with that, we don't get to experience the amazing things that life can offer to us. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. And and we're always going to have to come. We can never escape our own life. We always have to come back to that. So as much as we might want to distract ourselves, it's always going to be there. So yeah, that's Absolutely. super interesting. And and I guess that leads to what we were talking about before we started recording, um, you know, attaching your self-worth and your happiness to a future outcome. And I think you were saying an example of, you know, people that are saying, I'm, I'll be happy finally when I retire. And some people are talking about, I'll be happy when I reach this certain position or whatever it is, you know, we all, everyone has different versions. Uh, how, what would you say to people um, listening that are struggling with it? I think it's something that pretty much everyone to some degree struggles with. Uh, yeah. How, how can we try and find that balance of still striving for all these things, but, uh, you know, feeling like we're enough right now and being present and just enjoying life? Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn more, I've released my first book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life where I talk about my own journey with mental health and share tips from experts on how to maintain a healthy mindset. 
You can buy the book on Amazon or through my website at nickbrax.com slash book. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting one. And it's one of the myths that have come out of the research around positive psychology. Um, Sonia Lubomirsky wrote a great book called The Myths of Happiness. Um, and it's basically assuming that you'll be happy when. Um, and I ask this question often. So I had about a thousand people on a call, as I say, last night. Um, uh, a while back, I asked 150 18 year olds, I'll be happy when. I was quite surprised. Some of them were like, when I get married, when I have a child, when I get a job. Um, last night, it was, yeah, when I retire, those sorts of things. And the thing I always say to people is, if you're not happy now, you won't be happy when those things happen. Because yeah. it's not the marriage or the child or the retirement or whatever you that's going to make you happy. In fact, we actually know children don't make you happy in the short term. They give you a sense of meaning, potentially, but they don't actually make you happy. We see this on all the statistics. Children will make you drop your happiness drop until they leave home, interestingly. Um, so <laughs> if we're waiting for something else to bring us happiness, we're going to constantly be disappointed. Um, when I win the lottery, I'll be happy. When I be a millionaire, I'll be happy. Chances are you probably won't based on all the research. But what we do know increases happiness or what I think of as overall well-being or overall flourishing is putting those tools in your toolkit. And I'll give you an example. If you say to somebody, here's a lottery ticket, it's a guaranteed winner, you'll be a millionaire by the end of the week. Most people would take that ticket and sit and do nothing and wait for the million dollars to roll in. If I told you that you needed to do three things, four things, tiny little things for five minutes every day that would actually lead to happiness occurring, you probably wouldn't do it. Same mm. as the gym. If you want a six pack, if you want to lose weight, gain weight, gain muscle, whatever it is, going to the gym once will not do it for you. Nobody yep. wants to hear that, even though they know it's true. We want the quick fix. We want the pill. We want the surgery. It's the same with mental health and well-being. It's the little things that you do every day. And the way I often describe it, and the US is interesting because written into the Constitution is the right to pursue happiness. We know from all the research that if you pursue happiness, you will be less happy. But if you put tools in place in your life, you put activities in place in your life that allows happiness to occur, you will become happier. And that's the bit people miss is you actually have to do stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's a, <clears throat> I love the way you've worded that there and, you know, making it tangible because that's the thing. It's, it, you know, if we're looking for this mystical thing, it's not going to happen, but uh, it's, yeah, it's doing these daily things like anything else. And nothing would have meaning if we just had it handed to us, if we could you know all these yeah. things we want and we think oh, i wish i could just get it now if you just got it given to you, you're not going to value it the value is actually in the journey to get there and going through yeah. these difficulties and one of the activities nick that i often get people to do and and if anybody's listening do this in your own head right now is just think about something you have achieved that you're really proud of Anybody who thinks about that right now, think about the thing that you've achieved you're really proud of. I can guarantee you didn't just go out and buy it. It didn't just happen the next day. That sort of thing, it didn't happen. You had to strive for it. You had to put in effort. You had to overcome obstacles. It was difficult at times because if you didn't, you wouldn't be proud of it. Yeah. I can go and yeah. buy a Prada handbag. That's great. But am I proud of buying a Prada handbag? No, not really. I just went into a shop and bought it. You know, I, yeah. I did actually, I do have a keynote on this, actually, Prada handbag and positive psychology, about how you can still buy material things and use positive psychology. But to your point, 
is to strive for something, even through the difficulties, the obstacles. That's what makes you the amazing person you are. It's what yeah. when you use your strengths to overcome those obstacles, they're the things we want to be leveraging. So this is what I think is a lovely thing about um, well-being as a whole, more so than just the happiness moment, is you'll get a sense of fulfillment from striving for things, from achieving things, from being the best you can be, from making a difference, from contributing. That's where we get that overall sense of well-being as opposed to, yeah, I was happy today because I bought a handbag or I went out for a nice meal and had a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah, they're more instant gratification, which, like you're saying, sometimes might have a place, but yeah, yeah, but it's not something you you don't want to look to that to um, as a substitute for the the meaningful things in life. Um, Exactly. Well, you know, thank you so much. I I, I love everything you're talking about here, and um, I'm sure our listeners will get so much value out of this. Where where can any if anyone listening that wants to learn more about you and your organization, the work you do, um, we'll have this in the show notes. But where can we send them? Brilliant. So suelangley.com.au is my personal page, but the Langley Group or the Langley Group Institute is where you'll find our corporate stuff and our diploma of positive psychology and well-being. Great. Thank you so much. And again, that will be in the show notes. So anyone that wants to learn more, please, um, please go and click on the links. Uh, so we finish every episode with five closing questions. These are just sort of, you know, short answers, whatever comes to mind. Um, the first one being, what's your best childhood memory that comes to mind? Ooh. Do you know what? I didn't expect this one, <laughs> but it just popped into my head the minute I said that. So I had uh, friends called, the, they were the twins, because uh, they were twins, uh, when we between five and 11. And I don't know why this came to mind, um, but it was the fact that we li- I lived in a little village in the UK and for some reason there was a rusty old barrel, probably a chemical barrel left somewhere, um, and um, we used to wrap ourselves in a blanket. One of us would get in the barrel and the other two would literally roll the barrel along as fast as possible. And it was so much fun. I don't know why it's come into my head right now. You'd end up battered and bruised everywhere because you'd be rolling around in this big barrel. But I just remember it being so much fun. I don't know why that came into my head, but thank you for bringing it back to me this morning. (laughs) Thank you for sharing it. No, they're the best kind of memories. Uh, What do you think is the biggest burden currently on mental health in society? Uh, Lack of education. To be perfectly honest, exactly what we've been talking about is once people know this stuff, I spoke to a lady yesterday, yep. probably in her 60s, that came on our diploma, and she said, I've changed my life since doing that. Now, she was already successful. I'm like, well, you were already doing wow. great things. She said, my whole life, my relationships with my children, with my partner, they have changed. Um, so I think the biggest burden is lack of understanding, lack of uh, education around emotions, around they, how they impact us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's it's such a big one. What would be your own personal definition of happiness? Yeah, I I see it as a little bit different. So my my version of happiness is based on the science. Happiness is an emotion; it's fleeting. Uh, Something happens, you have a moment of joy, moment of happiness. That's great. For me, I think about flourishing, as in, can I have high levels of well-being? Can I flourish even through adversity? That's what some people think of as happiness. But I like to make the distinction that I can have a moment of happiness. I can have a moment of sadness. I can have a moment of anger, but I can still be flourishing. 
Yeah, it's that underlying, you know, that knowing that you're okay and you're enough regardless of the highs and the lows. So, Absolutely. yeah, that's great. What's your, what are you most afraid of, if anything? Do you know what? I'm actually not hugely afraid of things. Um, I'm certainly not afraid of things uh, out there in the world. I'm not afraid of people not liking me. Um, uh, I'd probably be afraid, um, I, even though I live at Byron Bay, I don't surf because sharks are out there. And I figure that's their environment, not mine. And I don't want to look like a seal in front of a shark. Um, so I'd probably be afraid of those sorts of things. Um, but otherwise, I, I don't know, I'm I'm a lot less afraid than I used to be. And if I have a moment of fear, I think it's because I've got the skills to deal with it now, mm. um, that it's okay to feel anxious, to feel worried, et cetera. Um, yeah, and I'm not afraid of dying. Pain I'm probably a bit more afraid of or, or actually somebody I love being in pain. That's probably yeah. more scary to me. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. And final one, what are you most proud of? I am most proud of the thousands of people that whose lives that I've hopefully touched over the years. Um, over the last 20 years, I've, as I say, run programs all over the world. Um, and because of what I know about the science, there's some wonderful work by Chris Darkers and Fowler that talk about the ripple effect that you have on people you don't even know. And somebody actually added it up for me the other day um, that I think it was somewhere around six to seven million people whose lives I've touched through touching other people and that three degree ripple effect. So I suppose what I'm most proud of every day is what I see other people doing with the learning that they have and the turning around of relationships, of businesses, et cetera. And I remember I was speaking at the European Conference of Positive Psychology last year in Iceland, and I actually read out um, an assignment from one of our diploma students that um, was a complete flip. So her first paragraph was, I'm really concerned about my relationship with my son. Um, he's 13 now. I don't think we'll have a relationship by the time he's 18. We are not getting on, blah, blah, blah. Then she put some actions in place and her final paragraph of her assignment was almost the reverse of um, our relationship has oh. turned around. I absolutely know that we will still have a relationship when he's 18. I believe it will go from strength to strength, et cetera, et cetera. And the way she worded it was just beautiful. And I read it out as part, with her permission, as part of my speech um, in Iceland. And I had people in tears. And they're the things I'm proud of. I'm proud of what people do every day with themselves, um, caring about themselves, caring about their relationships, and changing the world just one little ripple effect at a time. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, I think it's amazing work that you're doing. You probably couldn't do something. There's not many things more meaningful that you can be doing. And I'm sure there's even more people that you are helping and have helped than you're even aware of because, you Absolutely. you you know, you sort of never know who <clears throat> who's getting value or suffering in silence. So I think, yeah, it's incredible what you're doing and really appreciate you making the time and so glad that um, I've been able to connect with you. Me too, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for the great conversation. And yeah, I hope we will keep in touch. And now I'll start stalking you and Google you now. <laughs> and and would, lo would love to stay in touch for sure. Really appreciate it. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Sue Langley for joining me today for Move Your Mind. Also, a huge thank you to those of you listening. I really appreciate your support. 
If you'd like to learn more or connect with me personally, visit www.nickbrax.com or send me a DM on Instagram at nickbrax. Please don't forget to click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends, and follow me on Instagram. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.